The next Dibra is Lo Sinof. And the Eben Ezra says that uh, people commonly make a mistake, and he said the actual translation, technical definition of Sinof, really includes any act of illicit sexual relations. However, as the Ibn Ezra himself acknowledges, most people think uh, that it means adultery. But he wants to point out that, uh, literally speaking, it is a broader category. However, Rashi already points out that it's not just common translation is adultery, but in fact that uh, Lamaisa, if you look in the Torah and even in Tanakh, uh, other than in the uh, Dibros where it's not explicit, you just have two words, lo tinaf, but in other psukim where this uh, pasuk is reiterated or alluded to or mentioned as well, you have a more explicit association specifically with adultery, uh, and most specifically with uh, a man having an illicit sexual relationship with a married woman that is not his wife. For example, the Pasuk in Vayikra, Parakhaf, Pasuk Yud, the Ish, Asher Yinaf Es, Ish Es Ish. So there it's explicitly Asher Yinaf Es, Ish Es Re'ehu. It's talking about a man having this affair with a married woman. And that is, uh, generally speaking, the way we understand it. There are many other Arayoses that encompass the broader uh, more technical definition that are all under the maybe Neof according to Eben Ezra, but Lo Tinaf here uh, we generally assume is referring to as Rashi here says specifically adultery, that being of a man and a married woman. Uh, as I mentioned, that pasuk uh, in Vayikra, there's an additional pasuk also in Vayikra in Perak uh, Yudches, which focuses again on the man. Vel Eishes Amisecha and there's clearly focusing on the man, that the prohibition is for him. However, uh, the Rambam, the Sefer Mitzvahs, and others point out that given the fact that the Aser Sedibros, both in Yisro and in Veschanan, are gender neutral, low enough, that in fact the prohibition is equally applicable both on men and on women. Nevertheless, uh, there is a slight difference, perhaps, uh, and that is with the level of the severity. If two uh, people, a man and a woman, uh, willingly have such a relationship, so then they, it is a capital offense for both of them. However, uh, and, cap, and the capital punishment is specifically the form of strangulation, although there actually are certain more idiosyncratic, unique uh, cases of adultery in which there might be different forms of the death penalty, but most typical cases of capital punishment would be punishable according to the Torah by strangulation. But more than that, we know that one of the indications of how severe adultery is as a halacha is that the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Dafayin Dalid uh, and the Rambam passes this way in Hichot Yisori HaTorah, Perakei, we know that other arayos is too, but paradigmatically adultery is Yaharag Val Yavor, you have to give up your life. Even if a person was threatening your life, either have this illicit sexual relationship or I'll kill you, you have to allow yourself to be killed. And here is where there is perhaps a difference for men and for women. Tosfos in Masechet Sanhedrin, Adaf Ayn Dalid, point out that that might only be for man, because a man is considered by halacha the more active party in the sexual union. And that's why Tosfos points out that when the uh, Gemara discusses Esther's relationship with Ahasuerosh, uh, whatever the halachic challenges are to Esther's behavior, which is not our topic, and that's what the Gemara there discusses, but Tosfos point out, the Gemara there never assumed that what Esther was doing from her feminine female perspective was Arayo, was Lotinaf. And Tosa explained because she, as the female in the union, was more passive, and therefore 
she could allow, as unpleasant as that would have been, for Achashverosh to be the aggressor and the active one in the actual uh, sexual act, and actually that would be Yahar for a Jewish male, but it wouldn't be for a Jewish female. One of the ways that we also see uh, the the power, the horrible power, the destructive power of lotinaf, of adultery, is the fact that it actually, depending on different mafarshim, uh, creates problems and is a destructive and negative force in so many different areas. By which I mean to say is as follows. Many sources highlight the fact that the shoresh, the essence, the root of the, the evil of adultery is one of ben adam le chavero. The medrushim ben baraba uh, says that the word tinaf, lo tinaf, that we have here in the Dibros, uh, in a certain sense is a play on words, it's an allusion to, uh, as it says, al titain af, tate af, that you are bringing God's anger off of God's anger. And not only that, the Medrash says, al titain af, ben ishli ishto. Why does Hashem get so angry at it? Because by having this illicit affair with the married woman, you have sowed the seeds of discord between that woman and her husband. You've brought anger between them. And that form of betrayal uh, is a ben am lechavero violation. The Ibn Ezra, the Balakeda, the Sefer Achinoch, they all emphasize this idea of the personal betrayal, the, the benarim lechavero, of what you have done, Nebuch, uh, to the man who is uh, married to the woman who has now cheated on him, betrayed him, and defiled that marriage, and therefore both the woman who betrayed her husband and her uh, illicit partner are in violation uh, of that. The Gemara in Chagiga daf Tet Amid Bet, as understood by Rashi, uh, makes this point as well, as contrasting uh, adultery with monetary crimes. If you steal from someone, you can at least repay them. But, the Gemara says, if you commit adultery, there's no way to undo that. And here the Gemara is alluding to a halacha, that if there is a concrete, you know, definitive evidence of an adulterous uh, affair, then the woman is actually prohibited from going back to her husband, even if she's fully regretful, even if in theory he would want to forgive her. But there's a halacha called Asr Labal, that once there's a, a betrayal of that relationship, they are actually are required to get divorced. So if you have that affair with the woman, you commit adultery, you have made, you've done irrevocable damage to her relationship with her husband. And that's another example of the Berm Lechavero damage that is being uh, inflicted uh, by the person who is committing adultery, the man and the woman uh, who are involved in the affair. The Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daf Pe'alif, has a surprising comment based on the Pesach in Yechezkel, that interfering with a person's livelihood on some level is also a tantamount to adultery, to defiling that person's wife. That seems to be, you know, way over the top, way exaggerated and melodramatic. What it could possibly mean? So Rabbi Foyer, in his uh, book on the Aserah Dibros, quotes from his Rebbe and his father-in-law, Rabbi Gifter Zatzal, who explains that there's a character flaw that is in common. Of course, you can't compare, uh, you know, hurting a certain person's livelihood in any unfair way and actually having a marital affair, adultery, but there is a common denominator despite the difference. And that is a disregard for the legitimate rights of another human being. If you had a respect for boundaries, a respect for what's mine is mine, but what's yours is yours, I'm not going to take something that doesn't belong to me. Uh, not that a woman belongs to her husband, obviously, but she has committed to that husband, uh, and if, assuming that they're not getting divorced, she has no right, you, you have no right to mix in. It's not yours any more than someone else's parnasa uh, is yours. That common uh, flaw, again, is part of the Benam Lechavero of not respecting other people and those boundaries. But it's not only that. 
And there's a fascinating, fascinating insight that in different ways and actually on different psukim is suggested by both the Nitziv and his commentary, the Ha'amek Davar, as well as in the Meshachachma. And they both point out, even if the root is the Benam Lechaber, betrayal of the, of the married man, nevertheless, that's not all it is. Because even if in some hypothetical scenario that married man wouldn't mind, it would still be usher. It's not just about the betrayal of that man. It's usher even without that. The Meshachachma suggests, let's say you have a man who's impotent, he cannot father a child, and therefore he would ask a friend to secretively uh, you know, help uh, his wife conceive, and then he would pretend that he was the father, so maybe he was in on it from the end. It wouldn't make, from the beginning, it wouldn't matter, because it, that's only one dimension. So if it's not only the Banu Chavera, what other dimensions are there? So some of Farshim point out that there's a societal uh, factor, and that is that adultery is bad for society. The Sefer Achinuch makes this point, as does the Ramban, that when you have adultery rampant, then you are lost, losing the sense of paternity. We don't always know who the father is. Unfortunately, in the Western world, in recent decades, this has been a massive issue. We've seen the problem when you have, uh, you know, people being married in either, un- uh, be- people conceiving and having, giving birth either out of wedlock or uh, in adulterous affairs, or people simply are growing up without their father, to know who their father is. So it's bad for society, it's bad for the children, they don't have a father, they don't know who to fulfill, keep it off aim with. The Chinuch says, you know, they might unwittingly have incestuous relationships with people that they didn't even know were their brother or their sister. Uh, all of this is the, the, the societal damage of Los Sinaf is also a second dimension, which is kind of a form of Ben Abel on a macro level writ large. There's a third uh, dimension, and that is a Ben Adam La'atzmo. It reflects something rotten to the core about the person himself, irrespective of the damage he did to the society or the damage he did to another couple. It's what it shows about the rot inside of him. The Abarbanel says in Devarim that uh, one of the major goals of the Torah is for mankind to subdue his passions and to learn how to live in moderation and not to overindulge. And one of those gvulot, one of those areas where you're not supposed to overindulge is not with someone else's wife. Uh, just like there are people you're not supposed to marry, certain even within your own marriage, there are certain limitations of time, etc. So to completely be poretz getter, to go me'al, any kind of gvul, and to indulge in your lust with someone else's wife, that is a rampant you know, uh, inability, an extreme inability to subdue your own passion in a way that is very, very uh, problematic. And then, uh, last but not least, there is not only Benam Lamakom, excuse me, not only Benam Lachavero, individually or societally, not only Benam Laatzmo, what it says about you, but then there also is a Benam Lamakom uh, phenomenon or aspect. The Medrash in Ben based on Apostle and Eov, uh, points out that adultery is the kind of thing that typically happens at night. People are secretive about it, right? They have secretive affairs, they're furtive, they sneak around. Um, because they think no one's going to know. So maybe they think that society doesn't know, maybe they think that the husband or you know the spouses won't know, but what happened to Hashem? By hiding like that, they're basically implying that somehow they can trick Hashem or they can get it, you know, they don't really believe that Hashem watches. That's a Benam Lamokom flaw. Moreover, both the Mechilta and the Psikta, two different Madrashim point out, as we saw in yesterday's year, there's a correspondence of the two tablets. And therefore, the second Dibra on each of the tablets correspond to each other. The second Dibra on the right side of loya al-chimacherim, you can't have idolatry, idolatrous worship, corresponds to lo sinaf on the left-hand side, on the second tablet. That is to say, according to the mechilt, if a person will betray his spouse, he will eventually betray a Kodesh Baruch Hu, or the way the Psikta says it, if you commit adultery, it is as if you worshipped an idol. So you see this correspondence in Chazal here between the second Dibra 
uh, about idolatry, and the seventh dibber about lotinaf, and that, coupled with the medrash we just mentioned from Bamin Baraba, highlights this other dimension. We have ben Adam Lachavero, ben Adam Laatzmo, and now we have the violation of ben Adam Lamakom. All of these are violated if a person commits adultery. But just to conclude, in a more positive note, we know that uh, throughout uh, one of the axioms of Jewish thought is zel that Whatever Hashem says or course says in one way. It is equally balanced and corresponds in the other way. And if this is how bad adultery is, if this is how terrible it is to betray one's relationship, then it's also true that if you can have a loyal, loving relationship, a monogamous, uh, straight relationship without any betrayal and any cheating, that's something that's that powerfully good. And we see that from the Gemara in Sota, Dafyad Zayin, Amad Aleph, that the Gemara says, in the name of Rabbi Kiva, Ish v'isha, Zachu shechina b'neihem. Lo Zachu. It's true, if they're not zoche, what does that mean to be zoche? So Rashi says, adultery. If a couple is not zoche, if there's adultery, there's disloyalty, there's unfaithfulness, so then, a lack of faithfulness, so then, the fire will consume their marriage, it'll be terrible. But in zochu, if they're loyal to each other, if they have a kedusha relationship that is loyal to each other without any betrayal, zochu, Hashem rewards them by having His presence in them, their family the unit, their, their marriage, is itself a mini-mikdash. Mir Hashem, uh, we should learn from how bad Lotinov is to hopefully inspire uh, the Kedusha and the loyalty and the happiness of all of our marriages. The next Dibra, number 8, is Lo Signov, which Rashi translates based on Chazal as not theft, monetary theft or stealing, but rather kidnapping. The prohibition of stealing money is generally understood to be sourced in a Apostolic in Vayikra, in Parakiotes, where it says, Lo Tignovu, as opposed to what it says here in the Aseret Adibros of Lo Tignov, or Lo Signov. The uh, Mechilta, it's quoted also in the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, uh, interprets this. How did the Gemara know, how did Chazal know that the Ten Commandments, that Aseret Adibros is kidnapping versus financial theft? Lo signov, lo tiknevu, seems like, you know, pretty pretty much the same thing. So uh, Chazal explained that it's based on the comparison or the context, that given that the previous two dibros of adultery and murder are both capital offenses, it goes uh, with, seems to imply that the lo signov here on the Asarza dibros would also be a capital offense, <clears throat> and we know that stealing money, as bad as that is, is not a capital offense, as opposed to when it comes to kidnapping, we have a postbook, uh, just a, par- a parak away from this, in Parak Kafalaf and Shmos, which says, V'gonev ish u'macharo v'nimtza biado mos yumas. So, capital, uh, uh, kidnapping is a capital offense, that we already know. So based on that interpretation, we, in the Gemara and in the Medrash, we learn that in fact the reference in the Sarsadiros is also to kidnapping. It is worth noting that, notwithstanding, that the Mechilta uh, does uh, indicate certain times where this Pasuk Lo Signov is used for monetary theft, and in fact, numerous Mepharshim here on our Pasuk, this Eben Ezra, the Sephorno, the Malbim, all explain that the primary uh, prohibition here is not to kidnap, but that there is an element of the prohibition of stealing financially, theft monetarily, is in fact alluded to secondarily in the Dibros as well. In terms of the halachic details of this prohibition, so first of all, as we mentioned, it is a 
capital offense. The Rambam tells us, based on Chazal, that it is punished by strangulation, what's known as chenek. However, the Rambam also tells us, this is in Parakhtes, of the Rambam, based on the Sugya in Sanhedrin, that the capital offense, the idea of actually being punished by death for kidnapping, only applies if there are two conditions, that the uh, kidnapper has to make some kind of use, physical use, benefits <coughs> from the victim, but also that he then sells the person into some sign of slavery, kind of like an Evid Akhnani. Uh, in other words, it's not enough that the actual kidnapper just keeps uh, his victim, but rather he then sells the person who had been kidnapped into a yet a, another person's possession. The Minchat Chinach points out that even if you don't have these two stipulations, it's still an Isr de Oraisa to kidnap, how shall we say, Stam, but uh, the actual capital offense, that punishment, that severity, is only if you have not only the kidnapping, but not only then you use and then sell the person who you have victim. You have uh, the victim here. Uh, one of the most dramatic uh, expressions of the severity of this particular sin and crime, of course, is the tradition that we have in Chazal, that the ten martyrs, known as the Asari Haruge Malchus, uh, who, even though they didn't exactly all live at the same time, but the way Chazal presents it, uh, are the ten martyrs who were killed at some point uh, by the Romans in the time of the second base of Mikdash, that they were punished as kind of a kapara for Yosef being kidnapped and sold. The paradigm of this prohibition, the most famous and tragic example of this violation, of this prohibition, of course, was Mechiras Yosef. And the Medrash tells us in Mishlei that Abra B'Shub and Levi, Lo Nimshechu Asara Haruge Malchus Ella Bechem Mechiras Yosef. The cause, the cause of the Asara Haruge Malchus was the fact that the ten brothers had sold Yosef. And we have many other examples and elaborations on this phenomenon in Chazal. There's even a collection known as the Medrash Asare Haruge Malchus. And of course, we have on Yom Kippur, Ela Eskara, on Tishabav Arzahel Banon. And basically, the story goes a fantastic story, really, that Lulanus Caesar, uh, the terrible Roman Empire, Emperor, he was studying, as it were, according to Chazal Shmos. He gets to the Pasuk that we started with, and you see that uh, such a person who kidnaps is then and sells is, is high uh, death penalty. So he calls on the rabbis, he says, hypothetically, if this would happen, what would the perpetrator be guilty of? And the rabbis all tell him, of course, the Pasuk and Chumash, punishable by death. So the uh, emperor um, <coughs> says to them, Lulianus says to them, Kesar, well, what about the brothers? Nothing happened to them. They didn't get punished and they sold Yosef. Therefore, I am going to punish you in their stead. And Chazal say that the, the Chachamim said, well, what do we have to do with them? And it's not really clear. It's just, you know, Kacha. Sometimes anti-Semites don't need a good reason. Uh, what's fascinating is that uh, the Midrashim say, and we elaborate this, that they asked for three days, okay, three days, and, you know, kind of a last wish, so to speak. And they davened, and they fasted. And then, dramatically, it says Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Godel, who ends up being one of the, um, one of the Kedoshim here, uh, he has a special way to go up to Shamayim, and there he meets a certain angel, and he says, what's the story? Is it really true? Do we really deserve this? Is this Xerabin or Shamayim? Because if not, we, I have miraculous ways to nullify it, but if Hashem wants it, Hashem wants it. And the angel says, yes, in fact, 
this is what Hashem has decreed. And again, Rabbi Shmuel says, well, why us? What, what do we have to do with this? And the Malach says that Hashem has found no one as worthy as you to be comparable to the, the, the ten brothers. The Shvatim, the Shifteka, as bad as their sin was, but they were great tzaddikim, and it would need ten great tzaddikim like the Sarai Malchus to be equivalent. And in fact, this is one of the tragic, tragic stains in all of Jewish history. A super fascinating machlokes with both halachic and philosophical or hashkafic ramifications is a machloket in the Achronim about the following point. It starts off almost as a shot point in the Chumash, but in fact it becomes not only halachic but philosophical. And that is the fact that all the times the Torah mentions kidnapping, including in the Aserda Dibros, it always uses some conjugation, some form of the word lotignov or the gonave, and we know in halacha that we actually distinguish between geneva versus gizela. Geneva is something that's done surreptitiously, secretively. The owner doesn't know that you're stealing his money at the time. Whereas gizela is more, you know, mugging someone in the, you know, in bright daylight, or a bank robbery, right in the middle of the day. You know, put your hands up. You know, give me your money. A brazen public thing. So. Why is it, given that we know that these are really two separate things, how come the Pesukim always talk about Genevas and Nefashos, Losignov? So, Sawachronim, the Minchachinoch, or B'tzal Ashkenazi, say, in fact, it's only Osir if you're still a person in that secretive, kind of surreptitious way. Why? Because here's the philosophical and Lomdesha point. They say, who are you basically, when you kidnap, you're stealing. What are you doing? You're stealing the person from his community, from his family. He had a family, he had a life. You're stealing him from that? It's only the capital offense, it's only the Isra Daraisa, if you kidnap the person in a way that at the moment of the kidnapping, no one knew. But theoretically, if you were to walk into a house, you know, with a gun, have put everyone, everyone had their hands up, and then in front of all the other family members, you took the victim who you kidnapped, as bad as that is, it's of course usr, that would not be the capital offense, because that would be a gzelas nefashos. We need a gneva, it's a losignov. It has to be surreptitiously. The family who you're stealing him from does not know about it at all. He adds that perhaps the reason is that if the family doesn't know, it's much less likely that they'll be ever, ever be able to free him. Remember, we're not talking about the type of kidnapping that's more common in our day, or that we might be familiar with, Rahman from the news, or even Hollywood, uh, where someone gets kidnapped and then they're held for ransom. So Davka, of course, the family eventually knows about it. Here in the Chumash and the Gemara, we're talking about someone who's kidnapped and then sold into slavery, um, which again exists, although it's not talked about as much uh, in today's day and age. Uh, very much... Uh, black market of that horrible, horrible crime. So if the people don't even know that he, who took him when he was taken, it's going to be much harder to find him, as opposed to if they knew and they saw when the actual kidnapping took place. Maybe they suggest that's the reason why, according to this opinion, it would dafka be Gnevas Nefashos, which is worse. Nevertheless, other Achronim disagree. Rucham uh, Fischel Perlau, in his, his commentary to Rab Sajigon, disagrees strongly, and he has a very fundamental, profound, and I would say even philosophical reason for disagreeing. He says the essence of kidnapping is not that you've stolen a person from his family, from his surroundings. You've stolen a person from himself, as it were. Each person is not bereshus to their family. They're in their own rishus. Each person is being stolen, so to speak, from his own freedom. By taking that from him, it's not that you've taken him out of his culture, out of his community, out of his uh, family. It's that you've taken him out of his own life. That is the Gneva. And therefore, says Perlau, 
it's really incidental, gneva or gzela, because every kidnapping is by definition a gzela of sorts, and that it is brazen, it's out in the open, the victim sees what's happening. It's not surreptitiously, even if you do it in the middle of the night, because the victim himself or herself knows that they are being kidnapped. So really interesting halachic discussion, but also really philosophical, to what extent do we view a person, you know, as kind of having their identity just in, by themselves, or do we see them as having their identity through their family and their community, and it becomes a practical difference in Afkamina, as we say, because who do we view kidnapping, how do we define it? Are you kidnapping the person from their family life, which of course you are, is that the essence of it, or are you kidnapping that person from himself, so to speak, robbing him of his own freedom, irrespective of the community that he has been forcibly, and the family that he's been forcibly separated from. This leads to a one or two brief points with which we can add before we conclude, which is philosophically, or in the Tom, in the Hashkafa, what is so bad, what is the essence of this prohibition? Rav Hirsch points out, and I quote now from the English translation of Rav Hirsch on the Torah, that the Torah teaches us that freedom is a treasure, the robbing of which is a social murder and therefore equally to be punished by death. And this is very similar to what we just saw from a parallel, that a person is born to be free. That is nothing to do with anybody else. It's an inherent in nature of the person. And therefore kidnapping robs a person of that most basic right, and it's a form of killing them if you take them away from their freedom. The Meshachachma explains, based on this sifrei, that it's not just the lack of freedom, but this additional point that not only are you kidnapped, but then you're sold into slavery, that is a harm to your spiritual welfare, not only your physical or your emotional welfare, but your spiritual well-beings. And in some ways, he says, could even be worse than death. The Ramban and Eben Ezra also here uh, go with, with a similar approach, and interestingly, they very much highlight, I have to say, the Tzarech why this is, but they very much highlight the specific damage of kidnapping a person and taking them away from their parents. It seems like they assume that it's more likely, and maybe it was true in the ancient world, more likely that the kidnapped victim would be a minor, a child, and therefore you've robbed them of the ability to grow up with parents, you've robbed them of the opportunity of kibbutz avaim, and even in some extraordinary cases, they may at some point in their life uh, curse or do something to the parents who they don't even realize are their parents because they had been kidnapped. And last but not least, it's not just the person himself, it's not just within his family or his parents, but perhaps a further damage is suggested in a fascinating sefer called the Sefer Habris, which was written by Rapinchas Elio Horowitz of Vilna, who died in the early uh, decades of the 19th century, a fascinating work. And he suggests that perhaps there's an additional element that which is the marks the severity of this prohibition. Why is it that a murderer or a kidnapper who he who he equates and they both get a death penalty? Why? That is to say, by kidnapping, in addition to murder, but even kidnapping, you're attacking the social framework. Society cannot live, society cannot survive if people cannot be sure that they or their loved ones won't be kidnapped. The societal destruction, the breakdown of society, is partially why this prohibition is considered so severe. A person has to think about not just what's best for me right now, but how will this harm everyone, and then eventually me, when society completely breaks down and everything is chaotic around them. So this is, again, not the kind of prohibition that Baruch Hashem is a common one that we see violated, Baruch Hashem. Um, but it raises, its study raises all sorts of very fascinating issues about what it means to be free, and what reshut, so to speak, are any of us in, 
how much are we identified by just being ourselves? How much are we identified by being part of a community or a family? All these issues are indirectly uh, emerge from this fascinating discussion about the halacha and hashkafa of this, uh, this the eighth dibra, the prohibition of kidnapping lo tignov.